I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Every year, over 800,000 people suffer a heart attack in the U.S. One risk factor you've never heard about is LP little a. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. The most commonly prescribed medications to prevent heart disease are called statins. But while statins lower LDL cholesterol, they actually raise another important risk factor, LP little a. Dr. Sam Samikas is a cardiologist who studies lipoprotein A. He's written a fascinating article in the European Heart Journal titled Statins and Increases in LP little a, an inconvenient truth that needs attention. How can we control lipoprotein A? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the best-kept secret in heart disease. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, about half of American adults take some vitamin or mineral supplement every day. That can be pricey. The supplement market adds up to around $50 billion a year. Are they wasting their money? The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, or USPSTF, just published a review of the evidence on vitamins and minerals against heart disease or cancer. The authors reviewed 84 studies, including people with no known cardiovascular problems or cancer at the outset. They also had no vitamin or mineral deficiencies. In this population, multivitamins were linked to a small but statistically significant drop in the risk of cancer, including lung cancer. On the other hand, beta-carotene was associated with a higher risk of lung cancer, as well as death from cardiovascular diseases. The USPSTF presented this evidence to support its recommendations, also published this week. The committee recommends that people avoid taking beta-carotene or vitamin E supplements. In its view, the evidence is not adequate to recommend either for or against multivitamins or other supplements to prevent cancer or heart disease. A deficiency in vitamin D is associated with a number of adverse health consequences. They include high blood pressure, arthritis, infection, kidney disease, and osteoporosis. Researchers now report that an increased risk for dementia may also be related to vitamin D deficiency. The study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition analyzed data from 290,000 participants in the U.K. Biobank. The investigators found that people with low levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D were at greater risk for dementia. They suggest that this nutrient promotes the growth and development of nerve cells and helps protect blood vessels supplying the brain. Vitamin D may also have an anti-inflammatory effect on brain health. The scientists suggest that the optimal levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D may be between 25 and 50 nanomoles per liter. For decades, neuroscientists and drug developers have focused on amyloid plaque found in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Billions have been spent developing medications to reduce the accumulation of beta amyloid in the brain. The results have been disappointing. The latest failure will be reported at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference next month. Genentech, a subsidiary of Roche, tested its anti-amyloid drug, Crinezumab. 
in a unique population. A large extended family in Colombia has a rare genetic condition called autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. This results in early onset dementia in a great many family members before they reach age 50. The hope was that giving crinizumab early would prevent the development of Alzheimer's disease. Of the 252 family members who were recruited, 94% completed the study. Sadly, the drug did not prevent or delay cognitive decline. The FDA cautions doctors to avoid prescribing testosterone to men with low hormone levels unless they have a diagnosed medical condition such as hypogonadism. The FDA warns that extra testosterone could possibly increase the risk for heart attacks and strokes. A new study contradicts that caution. Researchers reported the results of their meta-analysis at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting. After reviewing 35 randomly controlled trials, they conclude that the risk for heart attacks or strokes was comparable in the testosterone and placebo groups of men. The lead authors suggest that this research should be reassuring to doctors who prescribe testosterone to men with low levels of the hormone. Can you balance on one leg for just 10 seconds? This isn't even a challenge for most kids and younger adults, but it becomes more difficult as we grow older. A study of 1,700 Brazilians between 51 and 75 years old found that those able to balance on one leg for 10 seconds were significantly less likely to die during the next seven years. Overall, about one-fifth of the subjects in the study could not balance. More than 17% of them died during the study follow-up, compared to just 5% of those who balanced beautifully. The older people got, the less likely they were to be able to keep their balance for 10 seconds. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Every 36 seconds, an American dies from cardiovascular disease. That adds up to over 650,000 people each year. That's even with roughly 40 million Americans taking drugs such as atorvastatin, simvastatin, and rosuvastatin daily. Even though LDL cholesterol is usually considered the villain in heart disease, it's really not the only cardiac risk factor. You may never have heard of lipoprotein A, but LP little a could be the best-kept secret in heart disease. Why don't you know your level? How can we understand this important risk factor better? To learn more about LP little a, we turn to one of the country's leading experts on this topic. Dr. Sam Tsimikas is professor of medicine and cardiology and director of vascular medicine at the Sulpicio Cardiovascular Center. That is in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California at San Diego. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Sam Tsimikas. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to join you today and to discuss lipoprotein little a. Well, Dr. Tsimikas, I'm going to tell you that I think LP little a, lipoprotein A, is one of the best kept secrets in heart disease. Most of our listeners have never heard about it before. They've never been tested for it. So why don't you start by telling us what is LP little a, lipoprotein A, and why is it important? 
Yes, thank you. Well, uh, lipoprotein little a is a very unique uh, lipoprotein. It's a combination of what everybody knows as li- low-density lipoprotein, which is the atherogenic lipoprotein, but it has to it conjoined, like conjoined twins, another protein called apolipoprotein A, which is derived from the plasminogen gene, and it can uh, theoretically induce blood clots. So LP little a is a combination of a atherogenic lipoprotein and essentially a blood clot inducer, and it comes as a combination of the two, and it circulates in the plasma and wreaks havoc on the blood vessels. Well, it sounds like it's uniquely designed to wreak havoc on blood vessels. You've got something that forms plaque. You've got something that forms clots. It sounds like a disaster. Why do we have it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, We don't know if there's a physiological function of LPA, meaning that it has some specific duty that it developed over evolution, or if it was a mistake of evolution. Uh, there are some theories behind why it circulates, but it's important for the for the listeners to understand that this is a genetically driven lipoprotein that's present in about 20 to 30% of the population. And so when something is that common, you would think you would have some useful function that has been discovered, but that's not the case. There are some theories. Uh, one of them is that because it affects potentially affects blood clot formation, it may have evolved to reduce bleeding. And one place where evolution is important with bleeding is in childbirth. So if if the mother has excessive hemorrhage, both the mother and the child will die. This is in days before modern medicine, when evolution was much, much, much more important. And so one hypothesis is that it actually prevents excessive bleeding during childbirth, and therefore the mother and the child can survive. If that wasn't present, the mother would die and the child would die, and therefore you wouldn't have this uh, accumulation of the gene in future generations. There's some additional hypotheses that are involved in wound healing, because it can deliver cholesterol to sites of injury, and therefore provide building blocks for making new cells. There's a third hypothesis that maybe it has something to do with preventing parasitic infections, uh, as some lipoproteins are known to do, uh, because the gene is very, very uh, common in Africa. And so all of those are speculative hypotheses. None of them have proof. What we do know, though, is in modern day age, uh, all these people walking around with high LP don't need it for any obvious reason. And so we get all the bad things from it. And none of the good things from it. Now, Dr. Samikas, you mentioned that it's genetic. And so the implication is that if grandpa died of a heart attack at an early age and, and dad had a heart attack or two and, and, and maybe Uncle Charlie and Aunt Martha, if it runs in the family, then there's a distinct possibility that you might have high levels of LP little a because you say it's 20 to 30% of the population that has this marker. What does it do? Why is it so harmful? So uh, genetic means, uh, let me just explain that briefly. Uh, It's what we call autosomal codominant, which means that 
if one parent has it, about 50% of the children get it. And so with this gene uh, developed over millennia, uh, you can trace, if you could, you can trace it uh, millions of years ago and every single relative going all the way back. So there are three hypotheses, main hypotheses why it causes cardiovascular disease, and not just arterial damage, but also causes aortic valve stenosis. Those are the two main uh, issues. So it causes myocardial infarction, st- heart attack, stroke, and peripheral arterial disease, and, and aortic stenosis. So the possibilities of it, why it actually is, is um, causing all those things is three things. One, it has all of the cholesterol and fatty acid components of LDL. And everybody knows about LDL. This is when it's elevated, you have higher risk for all, for all the things that I mentioned. Uh, so that's one part of it. The second part is, and this has been our contribution from UCSD in our laboratory, is that it causes inflammation. And the way it does that is through a very specific pathway, not through generalized inflammation, but inflammation through its ability to accumulate what we call oxidized phospholipids. And what those are are lipids that have interacted adversely with oxygen that we breathe and cause very toxic chemicals, and these all accumulate on the LPA particle. And the third uh, part of this is that the APOA component uh, appears to interfere with plasminogen. Now, this needs a little bit of an explanation for, for for the listener. When a blood clot is formed in the body, it has two fates. One is it can be degraded, and that's done through plasminogen, or it could grow and cause a problem. So plasminogen tends to degrade blood clots and prevent it from occluding blood vessels. APOA, since it's so homologous, so so similar to plasminogen, interferes with that. And so along with having the cholesterol component, the inflammation component, if a blood clot has happened to be forming, it will actually make it larger. And so those are the three things that seem to contribute mainly through, to its um, clinical expression of disease. Now, I have to tell you that most people have never heard about this. And many of your colleagues have probably not paid very much attention to it. And yet here you are saying 20 to 30 percent of heart disease could be caused by this marker. Most of our listeners have never been tested for LP little a. How long have we known that this is a big problem in heart disease and why aren't people being tested? Yes, great questions. So uh, LP Little was first described in 1963, so it's about 60 years old. However, the evidence for it uh, causing cardiovascular disease uh, started coming out in the 70s and 80s. Then there was interest in it uh, being a pro-thrombotic risk factor, but it wasn't until the genetic revolution, which was, say, in the last 10, 15 years, where uh, we were able to link it genetically to higher risk of heart disease, kind of like the patients you mentioned earlier. And so it's been an evolution of the knowledge base, but the average clinician thinks of things to measure in a way that, what can I do about it? And uh, so if they can't do anything about it, which has been the case up till recently, uh, they tend not to measure it. The second thing is most doctors have not learned about this in medical school. Uh, and so they're not in a position to explain what this is to a patient. So, of course, that brings some embarrassment 
and some issues related to, you know, not measuring something you can't explain. So I think it's those two things that have minimized how often patients are getting checked. Now, with this new understanding that it's a common risk factor, what I'm seeing is that it's being checked more frequently. And now there are guidelines that actually there's about eight guidelines that now recommend testing in some version or another, including the European and Canadian guidelines that say every single adult should have a level checked. So I think this will change. And of course, now we have therapies on the horizon. They're not approved yet, but we can very potently lower LP. So the combination of those things I mentioned should uh, allow physicians to feel more comfortable about ordering the test, being able to explain to the patient what it is, and that it's a genetic risk factor, and that maybe there's a way to deal with it as these trials are ongoing right now uh, going forward. So, Dr. Samikas, should patients be asking their doctors to get their LP little a tested? Yes, I think they should. I think uh, there's enough evidence now to suggest that everybody should know their level. Uh, and then, you know, what you do in the information is another question. But I, I agree, everybody yeah, that's an adult should have their level checked. You're listening to Dr. Sam Tamigas, Professor of Medicine and Cardiology and Director of Vascular Medicine at the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. That's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Tamikas has a large following on Twitter on the education forum at LPA underscore DOC. That's where you'll find his free online tutorial of 24 topics related to LP little a. After the break, find out if LP little a is linked to other cardiovascular risk factors like high cholesterol or high blood pressure. Are there people with normal cholesterol levels who have high LPA? What can doctors recommend for patients with high LP little a? Statins to lower cholesterol actually raise LP little a. What are the implications? PCSK9 inhibitors that lower cholesterol also lower LPA, but these drugs are really pricey and insurance might not pay for this off-label use. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible by Cocovia, now introducing memory and focus. This new brain health supplement is a unique blend of plant-based ingredients made with Cocoa Pro Plus proprietary botanical blend, clinically proven lutein, and naturally sourced caffeine. It's specially designed to keep you focused, boost memory, and support brain function with a single capsule daily. Learn more at cocovia.com. That's cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia. Introducing a new product called Memory and Focus. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. 
More information at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. We're talking about a lipid fraction in the blood that just might be the best-kept secret in heart disease. You've probably been tested for total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and maybe even triglycerides. Chances are low, however, that you've ever been tested for lipoprotein A. Is there anything doctors can do to help people lower their levels of LP little a? How do cardiologists deal with the inconvenient truth that the statins they prescribe to lower the risk of heart disease raise levels of LP little a? Our guest is Dr. Sam Tsimikas, professor of medicine and cardiology and director of vascular medicine at the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. That's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Tsimikas, when we're talking about heart disease or cardiovascular disease, often we find that risk factors tend to travel together. So people who have high blood pressure and maybe high blood sugar tend to have high cholesterol and and a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Does high LP little a travel together with those other risk factors or could somebody have normal cholesterol and still have high LP little a? Yes, that's a great question. The answer, the simple answer is this is completely independent of other risk factors. And most, you know, in most cases, there's no correlation with other risk factors. So what that basically means is you can have normal cholesterol, you can have no diabetes, your blood pressure could be fine, but your LP little a could be elevated. In fact, that tends to be the rule rather than the exception. And the reason for that is it has its own program, how your body makes it independent of everything else. And therefore, it can track with these other risk factors, but it, it doesn't have to. So, Dr. Tsimikas, I'm, I'm wondering about the person who, you know, does everything right. They exercise, they have a great diet, they may even be vegetarian. Uh, they go to their doctor, their LDL levels are low, their total cholesterol is low. Everything looks phenomenal. And then at age 58, they have a heart attack and they, they learn that they have three clogged coronary arteries and they go, how can that be? I, I've been doing everything right. I, I was even taking a statin. How could I end up with clogged coronary arteries? Could it be high LP little a? Yes. In fact, when you see these young patients like that, even some in their 40s, that should be a clue to the doctor that, that this is a genetic reason underlying this that's unrelated to any of those things that you mentioned, and it was never checked and missed. And so this is actually not an unusual presentation. And unless you measure it, you won't know the level is elevated because it's not obvious from measuring all these other things that you mentioned. And so this is not an atypical situation, actually. In fact, when a young patient like that you described presents like this, um, those are the ones that really should be checked. Otherwise, the doctor's completely blind. They're trying to treat something else or they're wondering what's happened. They tell the patient, I don't know why you're here. I'm sorry, you know. So this this is a great opportunity to be able to look into this to see if that's the reason. Well, Dr. Tamikas, you just explained to us that one of the reasons the doctors tend not to check LP little a is because they don't have a good way to treat it. And of course, we know that 
once statins came along and doctors could lower cholesterol easily, they started checking everybody's cholesterol pretty regularly. What can they do or recommend to people who have elevated levels of LP little a? So there are several things that can be done now, and there are several things in development. So when a patient has high LPA, that's a red flag that it's they're at risk for higher rates of cardiovascular disease, everything else being equal. So the first uh, goal would be to make sure all the all the modifiable risk factors are well controlled. What you what was just mentioned. You know, there's still going to be risk there, but you need to make sure the LDL is 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 normal or as well as low as possible. The blood pressure is controlled. The, the patient, you know, controls their blood sugar, etc. Now, there are some medications that we have. They're not super effective, but they can lower LP little a. However, the caveat there is we there's never been a trial where patients with high LPA were randomized to a therapy versus placebo and shown a benefit. So. We're using information that says you can lower the LP, but we don't know if that's linked to a benefit. But things that lower LPA currently are niacin at pharmacological doses, not the kind of vitamin doses. And there's several versions of that. That can lower LPA about 20-30%. And the other major drug class is PCSK9 inhibitors. These are antibodies or small molecules that uh, affect um, the production of PCSK9 in the liver, and PCSK9 is involved with LPA levels to some extent. And so uh, it can lower LP little a anywhere about 15 to 30%, although some patients don't respond at all. So what I have been doing in my clinic is I uh, use PCSK9 inhibitors, which lower LDL very well and have some effect on uh, lipoprotein little a. It's not ideal, but that is an option at this point. If a patient has severe recurrent multiple events, there's a procedure called apheresis, which is like a dialysis procedure. It occurs every two weeks, but that can remove the LPA from the plasma, and the plasma is then given back to the patient along with the red blood cells. So those are the three things that we mostly we have right now. Interestingly, estrogen lowers LP little a about 20%, but we don't recommend that for postmenopausal women now because it can cause blood clots in the legs and the lungs, which is which LP can make worse. So that's not really a good option, but it does lower LP little a. There are things in the future that are being developed that are much more potent, and I'm, I'm happy to discuss that uh, You know, when that, when that topic comes up. You bet. But first, Dr. Samikas, I'd like to um, talk a bit about statins, because you wrote an article, you've done the research, but you wrote an article titled Statins and Increases in LP Little A, An Inconvenient Truth That Needs Attention. And I suspect you got your colleagues a little excited about this study. (laughs) Can, Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I'll tell you uh, briefly that when Mevacor, Lovastatin, the very first cholesterol-lowering statin was put on the market back in the, the late 1980s, I got a call from a Merck researcher, and he said, you know, Joe, 
This drug, Mevacor, is going to revolutionize the treatment of heart disease. It is fantastic at lowering LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol. But there's this other thing that it does that's a problem that nobody wants to talk about. It raises LP little a levels. And that could be a problem and nobody wants to deal with it. So it sounds like the pharmaceutical industry was aware of the fact that statins could raise this risk factor called LP little a for a very long time. I'm curious about your research and what you discovered and what it means to both lower LDL but raise LP little a. Well, that's an amazingly insightful uh, comment that you made, Joe, and uh, I'm very happy to hear. In fact, you're one of the f- few people that have have uh, raised that. Uh, I'm amazed that actually this is was discussed back then. Um, and so let me just give you a briefly, I've been doing a lot of research uh, measuring oxidized phospholipids in patients and linking those to outcomes. And in those same studies, we were measuring lipoprotein little a, which is a what we call a sink or kind of a binder of these oxidized phospholipids. And I started noticing in a lot of the trials that we were looking at, the LPA levels are going up. And it went back to the earliest literature I can find. It is exactly that Mevacor paper. And I've been criticizing that paper for the, for the very simple reason. If you read the title of that paper, it says, you know, uh, lovastatin lowers LDL but doesn't affect LPA levels. When you actually look in the paper, though, it actually raises LPA. So they were a little bit intellectually dishonest, but not saying exactly what it did to LPA, which is exactly the point you brought up. So to address this a little more formally, we did a meta-analysis of over 5,000 patients that were never on a statin before, uh, that were placed on a statin, and then they had a follow-up blood sample that included LP little a. And what we've noted is that the, the LP tends to go up, not down, anywhere from about 10 to 25%. And so uh, we published that and we said, look, you know, statins are great. They lower your risk of dying of a heart attack, but they tend to worsen another risk factor that's not usually measured. Uh, and so we wanted to make an awareness of that. And there are two implications of that. Is One is, what does it mean if you lower your LDL and you raise your LPA a little bit? Uh, and the bottom line is that patients should not ta- stop taking their statins because of this. Because when you look in the in the blood of these patients, the number of particles of LDL markedly exceeds the number of particles of LPA. So when the LDL is lowered, they get a benefit. When the LPA goes up a little bit, they get less benefit than they should have if they had normal LPA. And so statins on a net basis reduce your risk despite the slight rise in the LPA. Now, the second part of this is it's not very pleasing to know you have high LPA and you're going to take a drug to lower your LDL and your LPA goes up. And what that tells us is we have some work to do to get specific drugs that lower uh, LDL, but also don't affect LPA or lower LPA. And the PCSK9 inhibitors is a good example of that, where they tend to be neutral in LPA or lowering it. So this is why in my clinic, by the way, I have an LPA clinic, which I think is the first one in the world that's been designed to treat these patients at UCSD. And um, I've been going a lot to, to go into PCSK9 inhibitors uh, to lower the LDL and the LPA in these patients pending a specific therapy to, to lower LPA like 80%. Now, 
I know a lot of our listeners are going, he's rattling off this thing called PCSK9 inhibitors. Boy, that's a mouthful. Let's make it simple. We're talking about two new injectable drugs called Rapatha and Praluent. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And those are PCSK9 inhibitors that, that affect LDL and LPA a little bit. And sometimes doctors prescribe those drugs to people whose uh, LDL hasn't gone down enough or whose risk hasn't gone down enough on a statin alone or occasionally to people who can't, for some reason, take a statin. That's exactly right. But it sounds as though perhaps they might might be prescribing them uh, to kind of counteract the effect of uh, of statins on LP little a if they were paying attention to the LP little a. Yeah, let me make just a caveat there. That is true. Uh, but stat, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors like Repath and Pral are not labeled as lowering LP. So if you look at the FDA right. sheet, so this is called, this is an off, off label mm-hmm. indication. Yeah. Uh, but it makes a good rationale, I think. If somebody needs LDL lowering, additional LDL lowering, and you have the option to give a drug that raises LP versus lowering LP when LP is elevated, to me, it makes sense. You might want to choose the PCSK9 inhibitor uh, if, if you had an option to do, to do one or the other. Uh, so it's a little bit, uh, the, the reader should realize this is, or the listener should realize this is a little, this is an off-label indication. It's not approved. But, you know, we as physicians have to use our best judgment what's best for the patient. And this is an example of that. And I suppose it being off-label might mean that your insurance company wouldn't pay for this very expensive drug. If it's just to lower the LPA, generally no. But a lot of our patients with high LPA have cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. or they have familial hypercholesterolemia in addition to high LPA. And for those patients, it's actually covered because those are indicated for cardiovascular disease. If they happen to have high LPA, that's irrelevant. So what I'm noticing in my clinic is I'm not getting uh, a lot of denials for PCSK9 inhibitor as long as the patient has either familial hypercholesterolemia or they have documented cardiovascular disease, which could be a heart attack or have stents or even have high coronary calcium. They will approve a PCSK9 inhibitor for those patients. If they just have high LPA and nothing else, then it becomes a little bit of an issue. And what's interesting is all <laughs> I have several patients that are paying out of pocket for these very expensive drugs uh, when they can't get approved. I'm just showing you the kind of angst that's out there at the, at the very well-informed patient level. These are very, very well-informed patients that know more about it than a lot of their own doctors. And they think that it's worth paying, as you say, for a very expensive drugs. The, uh, Dr. Tamikas, you mentioned coronary calcium, and I was going to ask you about that. Maybe you can explain what is it, why do we worry about it, does LPA contribute to it? And does LPA contribute to calcification of those um, those valves in the heart, those aortic valves? Yeah, great questions. So coronary calcium, so when a plaque is formed, it starts as a so-called fatty streak. So it's a collection of cells that have lipid in them, and then they eventually become inflamed. And the inflammation, and along with everything else that's there, can cause uh, microcalcifications in the artery. And so we can detect those with a CAT scan, very simple test that doesn't involve any dye injection. And so the amount of calcium 
in the arteries correlates with how much plaque you have. And so calcium is a marker that you've had a plaque before that's trying to heal itself. But because it's there, you know you already have plaque. So it's used as a risk modifier in a way that if you have no calcium, you probably don't have much plaque or very little, if any. If you have a lot of calcium, then you have a lot of plaque. Uh, it doesn't mean that the calcium itself is causing a problem, but it's kind of a way to detect underlying risk. And so the question is, you know, what causes high calcium and, and is LPA involved with that? And there are many reasons why patients get calcification. Some of them are genetic. But what's fascinating is that LP little a does not seem to have a major role in the calcium. It has more of a role in the inflammation and the thrombosis of the artery. And so if you saw calcium, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody will have a high LPA uh, and, and vice versa. So they're really independent of each other. But when you combine somebody having a lots of calcium and high LPA, it more than doubles the risk of a future event. So we use calcium to screen patients. And if you also measure LPA and they're both elevated, it's a flag, a red flag that the patient is at high risk than you thought from one or the other. You're listening to Dr. Sam Tsimikas, professor of medicine and cardiology and director of vascular medicine at the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. That's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. If you go to Twitter, you can find Dr. Tsimikas' twittorial on LP Little A. You'll find a link to it from our website. After the break, we'll talk about treating elevated LP Little A. For a person whose level is high, taking a statin could be like driving with one foot on the brake and the other on the gas pedal. You'll find out about a new study lowering LPA in people who don't have high cholesterol. Dr. Tsimikas will describe his hopes for the new drugs under development. Does niacin lower LPA? Niacin does have drawbacks, especially flushing. What about a low-carb diet? Could it help reduce LP little a? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia. Introducing its new memory and focus product. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Today, we're discussing a little-known cardiac risk factor called lipoprotein A. We've already covered some of its dangers. Now, we'll find out what we can do about it. 
We're talking with Dr. Sam Tsimikas, Professor of Medicine and Cardiology and Director of Vascular Medicine at the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. That's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Tsimikas has a free online tutorial of 24 topics related to LP little a. You'll find a link to it from our website. Dr. Tsimikas, you've mentioned that um, statins can raise this pretty important risk factor called LP little a, about maybe 20 to 30 percent. And for a simple-minded person such as myself, that seems a little bit like driving with your foot on the gas and the brake simultaneously. In other words, yes, statins lower LDL cholesterol, it's a bad actor, but they're raising another bad actor, LP little a. I know that there's a study underway in which um, Dr. Steve Nissen at the Cleveland Clinic is involved, and they're testing people with both a statin and uh, one of the new drugs that will lower LP little a. But I'm wondering, wouldn't it be interesting to do a study that just involved lowering LP little a in patients who did not have high levels of cholesterol? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, the way things evolve in terms of drug approvals, uh, the way these studies have to be done is you have to use so-called standard of care as the baseline therapy. And so because statins have been shown to reduce heart attacks, it's not ethical to withhold that from a patient. But from a from the perspective that they are bringing up, you know, just testing a a, you know, kind of intellectual academic hypothesis. Yes, <laughs> that would be ideal to do that. If we were in the 1980s before statins approved, that could be done, but it's not going to be possible in the current era. Now, if we get drugs approved for high LPA and they're already on the market, you certainly can then can do a head-to-head comparison and prove the hypothesis that you just brought up. But in the current state where we are, until we have evidence that lowering LPA shows a clinical benefit, it's not going to be possible to withhold uh, statin therapy from patients in trials. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you're expecting from the new drugs that are being developed. Yes. So, you know, I've been involved with uh, this this uh, whole field for over 20 years. And in fact, I teamed up with Ionis Pharmaceuticals in the mid-2000s help develop a new way to treat high LPA, and that's with a therapy called antisense oligonucleotides. Uh, they made the molecules. We had the transgenic mice in our laboratory that, that express LP little a, and we were able to have several proof-of-concept studies that led to where we are right now. So the drug that's currently in this phase three trial that you mentioned is pelicarsin, which is what we call an antisense oligonucleotide, another long word. Very simple is this. It's a uh, drug that targets the messenger RNA of LPA. And so going back to, you know, high school, you have DNA. Everybody has DNA. You make RNA, ribonucleic acid, which is the code to make a protein. So there are three parts of that. And so the way these work is they inhibit the messenger RNA so it can't make a protein. And it works in the factory that makes LPA, which is the liver. The liver makes the vast majority of circulating LP little a. And so if you prevent that part of the factory from making it, uh, you can have a very effective and elegant therapy. And that's what this drug does. 
So that's in the phase three trial called LP Horizon. It's going to have over 8,000 patients. And it's going to test the hypothesis that if you lower LPA, and in this case, it lowers it by over 80%, you can reduce the risk of its effect on cardiovascular disease. Along with this, which was several years ahead of all, all the other things that are going on, a new version of this called a short inhibiting or interfering RNA. There are several drugs in that class that also inhibit RNA. They're slightly different. It's, it's, it's too complex to describe here, I think. But the bottom line is there are now four or five companies working on ways to lower LPA. And all these effects appear to be very potent. And so we can get LPA to normal in about 98% of patients or more. And so you can think of this as the first statin but it's completely effective, not just partially effective. So you have to get new versions every, every few years. And so these drugs uh, will give us an answer in 2025 whether lowering LP little a reduces cardiovascular events. Dr. Simikas, you mentioned getting to normal. 98% of the patients get to normal. What is normal? I think a lot of people have heard things like, well, my total cholesterol should be under 200. My LDL cholesterol should be under 100 or under 70, depending on my risk for heart disease. My triglycerides should be under 100. In other words, they're familiar with numbers, but they've never been tested for LP little a, so they have no idea what's good, what's bad, what's terrible. Great question. And this is a little bit of an issue for the field as it's this is so maturing, but we have two ways to measure LP litter right now. One is in milligrams per deciliter. And what we consider normal is under 30. And there's another version of, of the test that comes in nanomoles per liter, which is the better one. That one is under 75. And so there's a border zone between the 30 and, and say 50 milligrams per deciliter and 75 and 125. So the bottom line is you would like to have your LPA level under 50 milligrams per deciliter or under 125 nanomoles per liter to be in the lowest risk category. So anything above that puts you at an increased risk. And so these drugs tend to get most people in those in the, below those thresholds that I just mentioned. And you say that the drugs presumably are going to be available for the FDA to review at some point after 2025. That's right. Probably in early, yeah, probably in 2025, uh, because the trial that's ongoing right now should be done by then. And then it's just a matter of um, organizing the uh, data and submitting that to the FDA, assuming that the trial shows benefit. I can imagine some of our listeners are going, well, I'm going to get my LP little a measured next month or maybe even next week because, yeah, dad did die of a heart attack and I am concerned even though I'm taking statins. So the question becomes one of, well, I don't want to wait till 2025 to do something. So let's talk a little bit about niacin. It's a very old drug. It's kind of fallen by the wayside, but you mentioned that it's pretty good at lowering LP little a. How would people take it? What do you prescribe in, in your clinic? 
And then we'll talk a little bit about diet and aspirin and maybe some other activities that people can do. But let's start with niacin, the difference between short-acting, long-acting. Help us understand, because this is a B vitamin. Of course, in the doses that you're prescribing, it's got to be considered a drug. Yeah. So, yes, uh, niacin is, is a B vitamin. It's been shown over 50 years ago that it lowers LP little a. We know the mechanism. It appears to prevent the production of the APOA component. Niacin is highly controversial now, so I think that listeners need to be aware of that. And the reason for that is that even though it lowers LPA about 30%, nobody has shown a clinical benefit from that lowering, meaning that we don't have any evidence in the modern era when people are also on statins. We have evidence from in the past, in the studies done in the 80s, when people were not on statins. But if you're on a statin and you're on niacin, it's been very hard to show a benefit of that niacin lowering the risk of new events. Now, could that possibly be the scenario I described earlier of driving with your foot on the gas and the brake simultaneously? In other words, statins are are lowering LDL cholesterol, but they're raising LPA. And so maybe that's why a statin-niacin combination wasn't terribly effective. That's, that's part of it. Part of it also, too, I think, is also is the fact that it's it's a modest reducer of LPA. And the other part is nobody's done the trial that, that can tell us for sure whether it works or not on events. In other words, the way that this could have been done, but it wasn't, is you take 5,000 patients with high LPA, they're on whatever they're on, then you put them on niacin versus placebo. That's never been done. So from my perspective, and it's all my own perspective, not so much the medical community, um, is that uh, it lowers LPA. It's a temporizing measure until we get something more strong. And and I use it very cautiously, though, because it has it can have some significant side effects. But there's a short-acting version, which you have to take three times a day, and there's a sustained release version that you can take at night. And the reason that it has two forms of it is niacin causes flushing. So it dilates the blood vessels on your skin so you feel kind of hot and warm when you take it. To minimize that, uh, you give a nightly version. So I think the way niacin should be characterized right now is is in the kind of uh, our realm of art of medicine, not science of medicine. What else can we do if a patient had a heart attack and the LP is elevated? You really only have two options, niacin and PCS9 inhibition, or maybe the combination. And so I have probably about 50 patients in my clinic, but I'm the far outlier of this because I've been using it for over 20 years and I have some people on it for 20, 30 years. But there are significant side effects from it, including flushing. Some people can have liver test abnormalities uh, and other side effects, including raising your glucose a little bit. So if somebody's going to use this, I would not recommend a patient just going to the pharmacy and getting high doses of it. Uh, I would recommend you work with a physician that has some knowledge about it and um, and do it in conjunction with a knowledgeable person. Oh, I think that's really important advice because, as you pointed out, the flushing, for most people, they can tolerate it, although it's uncomfortable. Some people can't tolerate it at all. Uh, but there are, you know, there is the, the possibility of uh, effects on the liver. There's the possibility of effects on blood sugar. Those things need to be tracked. And is it true that if you take the niacin with meals and over a period of several weeks just gradually increase the dose, and I'll ask you what that dose should be, that, that you can 
reduce that flushing so it's not quite as um, as challenging as if you started from scratch with a high dose. Yes, there's a tolerance to the flushing, and it slowly goes away over, I would say, six months. And so if a patient can get through about six months and a year on niacin, they tend to do well. Now, of course, the people that can't tolerate, you know, stop taking it. So I would say in my experience, only about 50% of patients tolerate it. Uh, but the ones that tolerate it tend to do quite well afterwards on it. And what my goal is to get their dose to about 1,500 milligrams, you know, a day. And I don't push it beyond that because then you see more side effects. You don't see a lot of efficacy at 500. You see some at 1,000 but you probably see the maximal efficacy about 1,500 milligrams. And so if you get a patient to, to about that level, uh, that seems to be the optimal uh, benefit that you'll get from it. Dr. Tzimikas, we also wanted to ask you about diet. Several months ago, we spoke to a physician who has done um, research on a low-carbohydrate diet, Dr. David Ludwig, and he said it lowers LP little a. Are, yes. are you using that in your clinic at all? No, and the reason for that is that uh, it's a very modest effect, about 10%. The problem with a low-carbohydrate diet in some patients is that it can raise your LDL, which is the last thing you want to do if you have high LPA, and it can also uh, have some inflammatory uh, effects, so pro-inflammatory effects, I think if a low-carb diet was done with low-saturated fat, uh, that would be a good alternative. The bottom line is, you know, it can be done. It's okay, but I generally don't recommend it because then you have all these other things that go along with it. You have to keep track of. My advice to patients, uh, and, and diet and LP is an interesting one, it's a very, very small effect of diet, almost none, really. Uh, it's genetic risk factor. So your liver will continue to make LPA. You can modify it a tiny bit, 10%, 15% at most with diet, but it's not enough to do you really any good from the LPA perspective. So my advice to patients is have a diet that you can follow the rest of your life. I recommend a Mediterranean diet uh, with low saturated fat because that seems to be the most pleasurable and also the one that can be sustained. I know there's a lot of debate about diets. Uh, Low-carb diets are something that we need to study more. Uh, and have outcomes. We don't have outcomes yet that tells us if I put a patient on a low-carb diet, they will actually have a better outcome. We do have it for Mediterranean diet. We have two large studies that show people on a Mediterranean diet have less cardiovascular events. So the field is evolving, uh, but in my clinic, I tend to focus not so much on the diet per se to lower LP, but just, just make sure they're on a good diet in general for all things, not just the LPA. And what are you looking forward to in the future? Well, I think testing is important. And I want to make make one comment on testing. There's something called cascade screening. So when you identify a person with high LPA, the recommendation should be to check the first degree relatives because you'll find half of the relatives will have elevated levels. So it does really allow you to sort of screen the family. So if you find it in a parent, you screen the kids etc., and the brothers and sisters. And that, I think, is a good way to kind of keep track of it among families because it really is a family disease. But what I'm looking forward to is the day when drugs like pelicarsin can lower LP to normal, and that will pretty much get rid of any risk from that particular biomarker. 
And so the, the, the best case scenario would be that the Horizon trial would show a benefit, it would be substantial, and that uh, for these patients that we just mentioned whose problem is primarily high LPA, we're not going to look for things that lower it a little bit or do as a side effect. We're going to have a specific therapy. That will be um, a, a great achievement if, if we can actually demonstrate that. Dr. Sam Tsimikas, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Well, you're welcome. And I want to congratulate you for being so forward thinking about this. Uh, you're providing a great service uh, to patients. And, uh, you know, shows like yours as well are what we need more of to help make sure patients understand their total cardiovascular risk, not what we just currently can measure. You've been listening to Dr. Sam Tsimikas. He is Professor of Medicine and Cardiology and Director of Vascular Medicine at the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center. That's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. You'll find links to his articles from our website, along with a link to his Twitter educational forum. We asked Dr. Tsimikas about his conflicts of interest, and he said he has been involved with clinical trials for the development of pelicarsin, a drug designed to lower LP little a. He's helped some startup companies beginning at UCSD. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wodarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,306. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post it on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. You'll also find a free e-guide to cholesterol control and heart health with lots more information at LP Little A under the Health e-guides tab. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.